Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. Hey there, it's Heather. I'm just jumping in here to let you know that the episode you're about to listen to is actually a rebroadcast of one that Ryan and I recorded in early 2019 for my other podcast, Lifeguard IT. We thought it would be a great fit for our listeners here as well. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. I'm Heather Bicknell, Product Marketing Manager at Lakeside. And I'm Linda Sow, and I'm an engineer at Lakeside. Hey, guys. And together, we are the hosts of the Lifeguard IT Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. We have a very special episode for you this week. If you're a longtime listener, you might know that we alternate our format between sort of high-level discussions on topics and in-depth interviews So it's always a treat when we get to interview someone in the field. For this episode, we had the opportunity to speak with Ryan Purvis, who's the CIO of Hilo Maritime Risk Management. Ryan has a background as an IT leader at both enterprises and startups, which you'll hear more about in the interview. Specifically, we wanted to know what challenges are top of mind for CIOs in 2019, and also any advice Ryan had for tackling large projects. Yeah, Ryan's always really fun to interview. He always has super interesting ideas. Yeah, and he's also a longtime super user of our product, SysTrack. So in this interview, we also talk about how he's used SysTrack in his previous roles, how he's using it now, and what plans he has for it in the future. Some of the topics that we cover are gamification. We talk about automation and artificial intelligence. And we also go into how to better understand users' needs and experiences. So if any of those topics are interesting to you, just keep listening. I'll also link any additional notes as well as how you can get in touch with Ryan in the show notes. So without further ado, here's the interview. All right. Well, we're here with Ryan Purvis, who's the CIO of Hilo Maritime Risk Management. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Ryan. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. So, yeah, Ryan's been on the podcast uh, with us before, actually about a little over a year ago. So this is um, good timing. It's great having you back. So, um, just a little warm-up question. I know when we had the past interview and just on our past conversations, it's been really apparent that you like to read a lot. And I'm just wondering, how do you find the time, you know, in your busy CIO schedule? And also, has there been anything particularly good that you've read recently? Yeah, it's one of those things that I always make time for. I've always I've always been a big reader. And I made a conscious effort uh, or decision maybe two years ago uh, to cut back on Netflix and, and the like, um, to rather read, to, to sorry. Oh, I, I said, that'll get you the Netflix. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, and, and actually at the same time found, uh, well, I, I listened to a lot of podcasts as well. Um, and I guess the time that I have usually is, is on the commute or, or at night. Um, and one of the recommendations was for an author, uh, or a series written by an author, Rake Brown or Rick Brown, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, which was, it's a science fiction, um, futuristic, uh, series. Um, and the podcast I think was security now, and and the guys who sort of made the recommendation said, you know, he, he picked up one book and he and he couldn't put it down. Uh, and I obviously took that out and went and, and started reading the same series. And I think I finished the entire series in about a week. And it was it was quite bad in the sense that I would not sleep because I'd rather be I'd just do one more chapter, one more chapter, one more chapter. Um, and that sort of kicked started me back into my old reading habits. And my, my mom would say I was of all her kids, I'm the only one that really reads a lot. Uh, and I read anything, um, provided it's, it's in book format. I, I struggle with newspapers and I struggle with magazines. But if it's if there's knowledge that I want to get, it'll come out of a book. And I find it's a nice way to to get a, a familiarity with a subject before going to talk to someone about it, because the next part, obviously, is to talk to someone. Yeah, so, so last year I set myself a goal of 52 books, which I, th- I went past a little bit. Uh, and this year I've set myself a target of 60 books, um, which is basically a book in a bit a week. I suppose the other thing to mention is I read more than one book at a time. Um, so often if you, if you do see my, I think they post on Twitter through Goodreads, um, mm. they seem to close off a lot at the same time as because I've probably finished three or four books that I've been reading slowly in parallel and I finished them all at the same time as well. Yeah, I keep falling short of my Goodreads goals. So those are just some great tips. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, definitely cutting back on the Netflix and um, just prioritizing it more is, is a good thing. Yeah, so um, getting into some of our um, interview questions. So, you know, we've talked a little bit before um, this episode. So the last time we talked to you, you were, you know, working for a large bank. Um you know, you kind of have a background there, but you're um, you've transitioned to being the CIO of a startup now. I'm just wondering, kind of, what has that change been like for you? Um, how has it been to go from you know managing thousands of users to being at a startup? Yeah, so actually, my career started in a small business, um, uh, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago, with a 30 man uh, organization, and and when I moved to the UK, that was really my first taste of of corporate life. So two banks, one real estate company, uh, and another startup slash cloud business in between. And when this opportunity came along, it was it was going back to things that were more comfortable. Not uh, in, in, in a that it was uncomfortable in the bank at all. But when you're in a, a larger organization, there tends to be a lot of people that are are doing pieces of a of a role or a process. Uh, whereas in a startup, you tend to be a multi-hatted, multi-skilled. Um, because you have to, there's no one else to do the work. Um, and that really appealed when the opportunity came along to get my hands dirty, but also have a more strategic view on things. Yeah. So that's, that's the, the driver was to be more, it was a bit to try and find the balance between the two. Uh, and, and to be fair, you know, my last organization that I was, was going in a good direction. Um, so it was quite a tough decision to make to move, but, uh, it's all about timing. Have you noticed any technology changes in your new role that maybe you didn't experience in your past role? Well, it's funny because, you know, Hilo is a risk business um, and, and specifically focused on 
on making the, the shipping industry safer through risk management. So taking information in, processing it, and, and putting it out through the risk model. So we, we, we're tending towards the banking mentality anyway, because uh, banks tend to mitigate risk as a primary objective to service their customers as well. Um, I suppose the nicest thing is being, being able to put in, in technology quickly without the bureaucracy of a big corporate. Um, and I think that's just you know the startup nature. But we're tending to all my experience from working in the in the banking sphere has has come up quite a lot because we, we you know we do an ISO twenty seven thousand certification at the moment, um, which has meant going through audits and and making sure you have the policies, the procedures, the controls in place, which are all you know day to day activities in a bank anyway. So in that sense, the the only real change has been that flexibility to put in a product because either you know it or it meets a need and, and you got to do it quickly because uh, there's, there's a lot to do uh, in, in the startup world. So do you have any big projects on the horizon for 2019? I know you mentioned getting that certification. Yeah. So, so when I joined Hilo, um, the biggest problem they had was getting data from the customers in a, in a regular uh, uniform way. Uh, so the last two, three months have been about building an automation pipeline to bring the data in. And because a lot of the data we get is human entered, there's a need to interpret uh, that information. So we'll be going down the route of, of an uh, NLP or, or natural language processing, and we need to scale. Uh, we've, we've got a, a rather large footprint of, of clientele to, to onboard data from, and quite a lot of volume as well. So that'll be the main driver for us this year is to, is to automate using NLP uh, and machine learning. Uh, so obviously the AI sort of technologies that you need nowadays, it needs to be in the basics. Um, and then we'll be expanding globally. So there's a need to look after distributed users and, and distributed customers. Shipping is actually quite different to banking in that sense. It's very global. You know, your clients all over, because we're this is more client focused, Sorry, when I say banking is different, it's different for me in the sense that we're, we're dealing with the clients all over the world. So you, you have to be conscious of um, what their uh, demands are from a legislative point of view or uh, even from a cultural point of view and how we and, and building trust with them to get the data that we need in order to process for the risk model. I'm, I'm interested in hearing about the, some of the outcomes of that um, NLP project because, of course, we've... Um, done some of our own work with NLP and are starting to dip our toes into AI with um, the new stuff coming out of Systrack. Mm -hmm. You know, speaking of our product, Systrack, I know you've been uh, using it for many years, but I'm, I've never heard the full story. So how did you, how did you start using Systrack and kind of when, when did you learn about the product? Yeah. So I've been using Systrack since I moved to the UK. Um, we, uh, when we made the decision to move here, one of my old clients who was with uh, the bank that I ended up working with, he had the opportunity to come on board as a, a product manager looking after SysTrack. And the sort of carrot was was a self-healing desktop um, project that they wanted to get, pick up and run. Uh, and SysTrack was the key component to that. So when, I, when we came over and, and when I had to make the decision between corporate life or staying with a, in, in the sort of solution vendor system integrated space, um, it sounded like an interesting opportunity. So I came on board, uh, track had only been deployed to a small number of users. Um, and, and one of the main targets was to push it out to, to the rest of the, the bank. 
Um, this is all the investment bank side, not not the retail. And the reason why I clip distinction is that obviously there's there's different factors you think about when you're dealing with retail branches. They typically have lower bandwidth lines and, and that sort of thing. Not that that was a reason not to deploy it. Was also uh, they had a different product out there, uh, and there was a need to do some some trust building before switching one out for the other. Um, anyway, we went from sort of eighty thousand desktops, two hundred fifty thousand in that year. Uh, and there was quite a lot that I needed to learn around SysTrack's architecture and, and how to build out the, the environment. But the, the interesting stuff actually was around the self-healing uh, and very much where 8.4 is now. Uh, we were trying to do that uh, with the product then. So we're sort of talking seven, yeah, seven years ago, eight, uh, six years ago. And it was a lot of reverse engineering in some senses and obviously with, with uh, Lakeside's involvement. But connecting to the local database, doing some work there, taking the, the resolve rules, trying to do automatic actions with that. Uh, and my sort of experience as a developer helped, um, you know, sort of writing the code and, and doing some of the checks. And, and we, we worked on how do we give the, the end user a, a perception or, or at least if, if, if it wasn't the perception that they had a good desktop, we would know what was wrong with it. Um, and this was also tied in with a VDI deployment going on at the time, uh, non-persistent VDI, uh, which was moving away from persistent VDI and, and moving users off, off physical desktops. So that's how it all started. Uh, it was it was a nice blend of of using all my experience, skills, and learning a whole lot of new stuff that I had no idea about. That's very cool. Do you remember what any of those automated actions that you that you were programming in? So we had a few pockets. Um, what, what actually ended up happening is I almost ran a program uh, where we tied together multiple solutions. So over time in any organization, you'll have teams that will build their own solutions to, to, to meet a problem. So a large part of what we were doing was to pull the data together from these different solutions. So we had the sort of operational guys that looked after the, the non-persistent environment had built their own set of tools which used to extract data. So we were, we were tying, they were, they were, they were doing automations on the desktop to um, fix a profile or, um, and that would be the user profile or the output profile. Uh, there'd be fixes that you look for in the mounting of applications. So you'd be looking in the registry uh, to fix a key or change a key. Um, there were automatic reboot cycles. So forcing a user to, well, not just forcing them without communication, but, they get reminders to say that they're going to reboot the machine in two days' time, one day time, and then today, reminders around saving documents, giving them a title so that the automatic saving would work. Various solutions. So part of this was was one getting the users to understand what they had to do. Um, the other part was to give the operational, so that you're sort of level three, uh, and even engineering resources, a way to deliver solutions to the desktop so that on a trigger or an alarm you were able to to do something to fix the desktop. So something like a process taking too much CPU uh, or too much memory, the tooling would receive an alarm from SysTrack who was doing the monitoring. That would trigger a pop-up to say, you know, dearest customer, your, your Outlook is using too much CPU. Uh, can we close it or are you do you want us to wait? And then if they clicked wait, there'd be a retry cycle uh, if the CPU was still being held by that process. And part of this was, was well, a lot of this was education of the end user to, because you're moving them away from their own isolated desktop, you know, laptop or a, or a physical machine to virtual desktop, which is obviously on a shared infrastructure. 
uh, and where those sort of runaway processes could uh, consume all the resources on a rack. Um, there were other cleanup things that we had. So with Internet Explorer, um, various versions of that, it, not all of them closed their sessions correctly, um, either by due to, to a bug in, in Internet Explorer or, or bad coding of web applications. So we had to clean those things up, and it was about finding those things. Um, and that's where SysTrack was quite useful because you could look at, at what was going on in a user session, there's a high amount of memory being used, what was causing that, um, and then put in place solutions to, to fix that. I love that you're kind of ahead of the curve there, because of course we're you know we're dedicated now to to building out more of those automated self healing actions in the product. So um, it's exciting to see, but I love that you were doing it um, you know, before before we started making it even easier for people. Um, do you remember any of the outcomes or like uh, kind of what benefits you started to see once you had implemented that? Yeah, I mean the the main driver for all these things was ticket reduction. Uh, a, t- a ticket would have a value, a dollar value, every time one was created. Uh, so if you could avoid a ticket, and I, f- I think the the average is one ticket, or the goal was one ticket per user per month, and any way you could reduce tickets to meet that. Uh, and I think the, the L3 got it to that level, just under uh, under one. Bear in mind, some of these tickets are, are going to be noisy tickets in the sense that they are uh, if, if they haven't received a response to their first ticket, they're creating a second ticket or a third ticket. Um, sometimes it's, I need help with a business application, uh, which has got nothing to do with the technology platform. Uh, but then you do have the, the tickets like, I can't log in, my password needs to be reset, uh, those sorts of things. And that's where automation really came in uh, quite quite well and quite strong. Um, I think password resets is still one of the biggest um, top talkers uh, when it comes to tickets. But even then, your, your sort of next ones are, are faulting applications or or problems with add-ins and that sort of thing. And that's where um, there were some good results. The rebooting of a machine um, that, had, that after after a week of running would definitely give a performance improvement. So we did see a down downsize in that. I can't give you exact numbers because I can't remember the stats. I, I mean, in some senses, our automations created tickets too because users didn't like the pop-up messages or they didn't like the reboot cycles. But that's also user education. Um, and that's one of the things we did in the last bank really well was was communicating with the users, showing them what we could see. Uh, so showing them something like Sustract Resolve, uh, showing them the black box um, data recorder, uh, showing them the memory usage, uh, you know, being a bit more scientific about what spec machine do they actually need as opposed to the opinion of, well, I need a big machine because I do big things. You know, the data really helped to to, to crystallize that. So I think there was a lot of a lot more trans- transformative benefits than actual just ticket reduction in the end. Yeah, I think what you pointed out there about that um, communicating with the users around changes is so important. Um, so they're not like, is this malware? Like, what's happening on my endpoint? Yeah. So you were talking a little bit about, or you mentioned a little bit about your uh, big projects, so like desktop transformation projects or uh, migration projects. So I guess I'm curious, what are some of the challenges that you experience from them? And do you have any like tips for anyone that might be attempting these projects themselves? Yeah, I think one of the, the biggest wins for us was knowing our customer. Uh, and I'm not talking so much about, well, besides the face-to-face, knowing them, but understanding what their profile actually was. Did they, what kind of applications they used, um, what, what machines they had under their, 
um, under their name, uh, you know, instances where users had multiple laptops or multiple desktops, uh, what kind of uh, files they stored, where, you know, network folders, shared mailboxes, um, uh, and so on. So knowing, knowing that um, aspect of a user, so almost moving towards personas, that, that was one of the first key things to, uh, to get to grips with. Uh, and then looking at those applications specifically around what would be good for the platforms, um, specifically looking at licensing as well. Have you got the right license for that user? So uh, an example would be something like Adobe Reader can be used for most use cases, but there's very, very rare that you actually need Adobe Professional. Um, and obviously, if there's a need for Adobe Professional, making sure that, that the use case matches the license cost. Um, the same with something like Office 365. What sort of CAL should you be looking for? You know, an E3 versus an E5, um, and and really just being being clear on when something goes onto the new platform. You know, are you is it the same software just being repackaged, or is it a newer version that has potentially uh, a new interface or a new performance load? Uh, so one of the things that we did quite well in both organisations where we did this was having an application testing function uh, on the build. Uh, so as a build goes through its process of being put together and any of the business, core business applications are put on top of it, uh, there was profiling done of, of how did that impact the, the performance of the, of the build. Um, you know, trying to keep that, that footprint as low as possible uh, or tuning down the sort of noisy things like um, antivirus, for example, from making too much or taking too much resource when they were. We had a lot of that with the anti-malware, anti-spyware software that needed to be tuned as well. And some of the newer technologies like uh, um, the VMware, uh, what do I call them, application application stacks. Um, there's a lot of exclusions you need to put in place. So that, you know, just knowing what those things look like uh, and testing that a lot before it goes out to customers um, is quite good to do. Uh, the other thing obviously is to have waves, you know, wave zero, wave one, wave two, where customers will get the new build at different different um, times. Uh, so sort of having wave zero for, for the IT folk and then wave one for the friends and family, wave two for the the next small batch of people. So if you just need to roll back, you've got that opportunity. Um, the other thing we did really well, which which was to compare old builds versus new builds and physical versus virtual. So if we had a user that was on virtual, we'd know uh, what their physical footprint was like. Um, you know, obviously one of the first sort of challenges you'll get is that, oh, my desktop was better than this. Um, and in most cases, you're, you're looking at the data, it wasn't. You, you could see clear things where the, the VDI infrastructure was performing better, but because they didn't have the, the laptop or the desktop underneath their, their desk, they felt that they were, they were somewhat robbed mm-hmm. um, in a way. Um, and yes, there are, there's, there's the converse. There will be, always be, there will be some that get, that get a worse experience. I mean, something like Visual Studio on a VDI, it's quite a big application. You really need to fine tune it to, to run on, on VDI. So you can see, you know, the converse sometimes. But that's the point is you, you're looking at this from a scientific point of view as opposed to opinion. So that's, and that's the, you know, the, the one of the keys as well is to keep it as, as unopinionated as possible and, and as factual as possible. So I guess, what did you do with the users that had all the resources but were migrated over to VDI and therefore they were kind of, like you said, uncomfortable with the whole situation? It depended on the situation. Uh, often we would show them the data that we had. 
we did three series sort of an, an analysis where we looked at the sort of three common, four common resource pillars. So IOPS for your disk, um, CPU, memory, and then applications that were in use at, at any given time. Some of this was was education of a user, so teaching or showing them things like closing too many windows that are open, um, not having so many applications open at any given time. Uh, there was some gamification that we did with uh, with a portal, so almost uh, scoring them on good corporate, good IT corporate practice. So if you if we took we took the SysTrack health score and we, and we merged it with the uh, almost the recommendation health score. So if we gave you 10 recommendations and you, and you medal 10, you got a hundred percent and that was averaged out with your health score. Uh, and that gave, well, the intention was to give the end user some, some skin in the game mm-hmm. to, to you know, be part of, cause in some senses it's, it's been part of, they're part of the infrastructure, the, the service and the infrastructure. Um, if everyone behaves well and the infrastructure performs well, if everyone behaves badly, we have the converse. And that went off pretty well in some cases, some cases people didn't like being scored. Uh, in some cases, there was competition around the score, which was the right thing. But at some point, the, the, the you could only get that score so good. And I think we, we we only really touched on the on the edge of what we could have done with gamification. Um, we could have looked more at, at leaderboards and, and actually across sort of non non technology related items such as service requests or ticket creation. Uh, you know, losing points for creating unnecessary tickets, for example. Yeah, it's, it, the gamification, I think, will, will be more prevalent over time. I think it's, it's definitely proven itself to work. And you'll see it, I think we'll see it more and more in business applications. I think that's good. I think it can be, you know, it, 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 makes, it makes it so you have some awareness, I think, of what's going on with your, with your computer without being, you know, too technical or overbearing in some way, I think. Mm-hmm. And then it allows sort of that we talk about the concept of level zero which is where you know users are are using self-service and taking the resources that it gives them to remediate things themselves they don't actually even enter into that help desk cycle right um but it is really important to you know find clever ways like gamification to make that actually um possible and at least fun for some people what are the reasons we um wanted to do this episode with you is that you've recently deployed SysTrack at your new company. So I'm just wondering kind of what has that deployment process been like for you? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We're, we're trying to use Intune to deploy it. Um, so that's, that's had some interesting challenges, primarily because I don't think Intune works as, as well as it should, or at least from it, it should be a lot easier than it has been for us to deploy that. Uh, the main reason for deploying SysTrack was around the ISO 27000 process and what I expected we'd need to have from an audit point of view uh, and information security uh, requirements. Um, but it's it's in place now. Uh, we're, we're using it as part of diagnostics. So because I have people that travel quite a lot with laptops, um, if they have problems, I can at least have a look at what's going on. Uh, I make sure, obviously, from a uh, a compliance point of view that all our patches are deployed, latest versions, that sort of thing. Um, and before we lock down the desktop completely, uh, knowing which applications users are using uh, so they can be packaged to be deployed through Intune. Because um, that actually works really well when, when it is working, uh, getting applications down. Uh, even for our small user base, it's, it's taken a, a load of me to make sure it's happening. Um, and even with the, with the team we're using, 
uh, it gives them some comfort that they know that they've got the, the right version of Chrome uh, with the right extensions to use. Um, most of the most of the users are seafarers um, with 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 a, a light technology background to a medium technology background, uh, and they're just more comfortable knowing that they've got the right stuff available to them. I guess what are some of the um, so we've talked about you know how you've been able to kind of meet those. Um, you know, start thinking about um, compliance and um, kind of audit everyone's desktops and, and also plan for your certification with SysTrack. What are some other ways that you're hoping to make use of SysTrack in the future? Well, as I say, from an order point of view, it's, it's around proving that we are monitoring the desktops. We know what's happening on them. Uh, anything that's installed, we know about. From a, from As we grow and, and expand, there'll be a need to monitor desktops to support the users on them. Um, I also would like to at some point see them on ships, see SysTrack on ships, uh, where we can also get some some insight to to what's going on there. Because again, we're we're, we're dealing with um, incidents that are happening on a vessel, and as much as we have the human input, we're looking for the telemetry as well uh, to merge that together. So mechanisms that can, that can collect that data for us uh, would be helpful. So so that would be the ideal uh, or dream, at least, is to get. A more more complete coverage. I love the image of that use case of Sistrack mm-hmm. on the vessel. You have to <laughs> let us know um, when you get there. I think it's very suiting oh. for our company name too. Lakeside. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so our customers use digital experience monitoring tools for lots of different kinds of projects, right? So we've talked about, you know, how you can plan a migration, how you can augment what the help desk can see. Um, use it for root cause analysis, those kinds of things. But since these use cases can be so broad, there's a bunch of different ways that customers tend to quantify the impact of a digital experience monitoring solution. So I'm just wondering, what does successful DEM um, kind of look like to you? How have you noticed benefits? So I think there's there's a, there's a level of transparency that's important. Um, knowing how, when you, when you look at the, the service you're getting, hard hard fits together, and, and maybe this is the technology view, but I'd, I'd like to understand an end-to-end view of, of what I'm working with. So um, when something's not working, I'd like to know why it's not working and where it's not working, uh, primarily so that I can potentially get around it uh, to get something out of get something working if it's broken. Um, an example would be if, if I can't log into my desktop because there's no internet in the room that I'm um, with, because I, I use my, my laptop remotely sometimes. If the machine is down or the, the Wi-Fi is down, I like to know what's broken. So, for example, I would look at when I'd look at Resolve. If, if Resolve can connect to the desktop, then I know the desktop's open, but there's something else that's potentially causing the problem. So, that, so that's where I look at it. Um, I think the other thing is that when when you're working on a on a device, um, you want to know that it's that it's it's best or optimum state for you to be working on it. And if it's not, it's nice to know that at least the monitoring or the resolution is aware of what of what the potential problem is and how to fix it. And I think that's something that uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more and more with with SysTrack, um, in the sense of self healing or, or self repairing. And even with some of the stuff we did at um, in the banking, at least, where we could notify proactively that there's a problem before it becomes a problem that someone logs a ticket for. So if the 
uh, we had Azure that went down recently for Office 365. Uh, I think it was out in the States and, and it affected a bit of Europe. Uh, if you were notified that your exchange was going to be down or your email is going to be down, so most people would know it would be exchange, at least then you wouldn't waste an hour trying to get it to work, um, which means you can focus on something else in that time. So that, when it comes to experience monitoring, it's it's so much. It's sometimes it's just about knowing that something actually is broken and someone actually is going to repair it, as opposed to you struggling with the problem, trying to figure out what's wrong. Yeah, I definitely think the ability to kind of surface those really business critical insights more and more is going to be um, very interesting and, and very helpful for large organizations, especially. And I, and I think there's even a level of of just knowing. Um, today your experience was worse than yesterday because of something. We know it's because uh, we had the, the Windows 10 uh, re- release a couple of months ago, I think, where it actually made it worse for users. Uh, there were some strange bugs that, that came in. Um, if if you know that that's happened and you know that the next one comes out and, and, it tell, and there's a level of of differential comparison to say, well, today's version is better because we've removed... Two percent of the code base because it was bad code. Uh, I don't know. Whatever, whatever the metric is, that's also helpful to know that things are improving, or if they're not, if, if they're not improving, why they're not improving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I remember. Yeah, some of those people's cameras stopped working, and um, all of those interesting bugs that can happen off of um, new Windows builds. Yeah, and, and we've. I mean, one of the things. Sorry, one, one of the things we we did oh, as no. well. Was, was to push out um, a monthly report of load times for core applications. How long does it take for Excel to load? How long does it take for Word to load? Which is really about efficiency uh, or effectiveness of the platform. And if there's ways to improve that, um, and, and, and a lot of these are you know, affected by, by third-party add-ins, because if you had nothing, if you'd use the, the sort of core Windows build with the core uh, Office uh, applications, you wouldn't expect to have much delay because it should be it's Microsoft working with Microsoft. But the minute you you bring in other variables, macros and and third party components, that's where you start seeing delays. Um, and and again, someone should be aware of that and to be pointing at it and monitoring it. You, you at least know there's there's a bit of visibility and a little bit of focus. Yeah. What are some of those um, KPIs that you look for when thinking about improving digital experience? So application load times is, is obviously one. Uh, boot and boot and log on. Uh, that's that's one to look at as well. Uh, average up, average uptime. Uh, Windows devices tend to work better after a regular reboot cycle. Um, age of the build. So you you typically find that a Windows device, and this is anecdotal to be honest, not really scientific, uh, needs a rebuild once a year if you keep it on a desktop. Uh, whereas obviously VDI you're rebuilding monthly, so it's less of a problem. And the other things are more around how the user uses the desktop. Uh, so do they leave applications open and running in the background forever? Uh, and that could be a day, three days a week, uh, and depending on the reboot cycle. Um, I've seen instances where we've had applications running for a year, um, just holding on to, to resources, uh, and also not restarting the device. So you know, updates that need to to be run or installed, and that rely on that that uh, restart, um, don't fin- don't finish their install. Uh, so that's that's another thing to sort of be aware of. Um, 
age of, of the updates. So things like antivirus updates and um, the actual version of the operating system are important to look at. So that doesn't matter whether it's Mac or, or Windows, uh, making sure you're always running the latest. So if any of those things are not happening, those are typically signs of, of, of bubbling problems to come. Um, then, of course, talking to the user. Uh, so I think the surveying tool, which is, well, I think it's an 8.3 feature, uh, was something I was quite excited to push out. Uh, even just talking to the user on the phone, sharing a screen, seeing what they do, seeing what we see in the data to correlate with what they're experiencing. So, for example, we might see the health score at, at 85%, and that's obviously the SysTrack health score I'm, I'm talking about. But does the user feel like that's a, a real a real number to them? Do they feel like they've got a, an 85 to 90% experience? Um, and if they don't, you want to try and find out why they don't think that. And there might be a good reason for it. It could be um, they you know, have a certain way of working that, that, that the platform doesn't meet. I guess we could probably just transition to um, sort of the predictions question, unless there is anything else you kind of had lingering on your mind. Uh, yeah, so I was actually thinking, I mean, this is probably the most interesting question uh, in some senses, because I think as much as things move really quickly, I think they're quite slow as well. I think this year and, and the next two, three years will be really around AI becoming more and more prevalent or the barrier to entry will be a lot, a lot less. And I think that's going to appear more in the codeless way. Uh, and if you look at how Microsoft has released um, Power Apps uh, with Dynamics um, and Dynamics AI, uh, as an example, I think you'll see the, the ability for, for anyone who's got a bit of time uh, and is willing to learn a little bit that they can actually deploy something, uh, some you know application that they're trying to use uh, or they need with a backend AI. And it'd be a simple AI. It'd be something simple like a recommendation engine or a um, Q&A tool or whatever it is. I think you see a lot more of those arriving, um, which is tough for a business sometimes because users can do stuff in the consumer space they can't really do in the business space because of all the lockdowns and, and restrictions to protect the business. Um, the other thing that I, I think will, we'll, and, and I've just experienced this myself buying a, an iPad Pro, is that the ability to work off a, a sort of an intermediate device, which is what I consider this to be, and then have a hosted desktop where you actually do your more heavy work um, so have that hosted in AWS, or have that hosted in, in Azure, will give you much more flexibility to work anytime, anywhere, and then carry obviously a less, well, my, my laptop was pretty light as it was, but but it was a big thing to carry around, but, but an easier commute or a more flexible way of working, which I think is quite exciting. Uh, and then I think the other thing which we're seeing with some of the work that I'm doing with, with some other companies is around boutique subscriptions uh, and having those become uh, more granular so that you can build your own subscription. Uh, and you'll probably find there'll be subscription aggregations that'll start happening. Um, very much like uh, Netflix has, has done with, with content and obviously now making their own content. I think someone's going to figure out how to do subscriptions that way, which would be interesting. Definitely. Oh, and there was one yeah. other, sorry, one last thing was, was gaming as a service. So we talked about gamification. And, I, and I'm interested to see how, with the likes of Microsoft gearing up and AWS, I think it's just announced as well, to provide better mechanisms to stream games, again, on any device, any time. But I think that'll open the door for, better, for a change in education and a, train in, and a, and a change in, in teaching. 
where I think gamification obviously on, on its own already has a huge um, footprint, but the way we, we do education is going to shift more and more. We're using those sort of tech, that sort of uh, flavor. It's funny because you said gamification. And I was thinking, oh, like SysTrack can have its own like leaderboard, like turning SysTrack into a game. I wasn't thinking about the um, the actual like video games aspect. Well, that's that's exactly it, though. You could, mm. um, and I don't. I mean, I don't think you need to write a, a 40 game, um, but I, but I think you would be able to have. Uh, you know, your your certification be a first person experience where you go in in this in this realm, handle a, a technical problem um, mm-hmm. with with the leaderboard and who does it the and, and you could set some interesting puzzles. Yeah, I know there was um, kind of an article we covered a while ago kind of related to this idea of bringing more tech into schools where um, I think it's a Google technology where you could basically do like a remote field trip and explore like, you know, the pyramids of Egypt from, you you know, your um, iPads or whatever you have in the classroom. So Mm -hmm. I think that definitely makes sense. I haven't heard people, um, I haven't heard a lot of stuff about that, but I can definitely see that happening. Yeah. So I guess uh, was there if people want to get in touch with you, Ryan, is there um, any good way to reach you? Yeah, I'm on the the usual sort of social media channels. So so Ryan Purvis on Twitter, or at Ryan Purvis, you'll find me on Twitter. Um, LinkedIn, find me there as well. Uh, and I think I'll just give you, I'll give you the links so you can put them in the notes. Um, and that's yeah, probably two best places to get hold of me. All right. Well, it's been great catching up with you, Ryan. Thanks for coming on again. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Always enjoyable. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.